Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Uh, certainly invite you to turn to page 814 in those Bibles in front of you, um, if you choose to use those. Um, but uh, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers and do his harvest. This is God's holy and perfect word. Amen. Thanks be to God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Lord, we thank you for this word. Thank you for your scriptures. Um, and, and thank you for our time in them today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome. You can have a seat. Come on, you know, when we say, we read the passage, we say amen, you sit down, okay? So I don't have to, don't have to tell you. It's just kind of, it's kind of, we do the same thing every week. That's not a bad thing. I remember going through my early 20s, criticizing all the people who did the same things every week. There's actually something pretty powerful um, to, the, to, the, uh, to the habits, to the, to the things that we do. We don't do them um, meaninglessly, right? Uh, but there's something deeply formative to, to what we do together here. Um, and as we've talked even in the last few weeks, we also um, are, are uh, expectant and excited for the Spirit to, to intervene and interrupt, quote-unquote interrupt, um, our time together in, in various ways. And so really excited to be in this passage today, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Uh, here we are at the end of chapter 9. I don't know about you, but it feels like the end of a chapter. It, it actually really is in the end of a chapter. So, uh, but but in, in, a, in a literal way and a metaphorical way, uh, we've, we've spent a lot of really great time in, in these couple chapters and have learned really beautiful things. And, and what we've seen is that the author of, of this gospel... Um, which is the Holy Spirit has played his hand, um, played his hand from the very first line of the book uh, by, by coming straight out and calling Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham, which means that the Holy Spirit fully expects the reader, us, the hearer, or the readers to embrace Jesus as this coming Messiah, that Jesus is the promised Holy One of God. Um, and that's a, that's a beautiful truth and a reality. Um, that, that, that Matthew ties um, Jesus to millennia and centuries of expectation and says Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah. Now, you heard me say the author of this gospel, the Holy Spirit. Um, it, it is Matthew um, who, who is believed to have penned this gospel that bears his name, but um, I, I've got kind of like a planned rabbit trail here, a built-in rabbit trail. Can, can we go on the rabbit trail? Um, rabbits... rabbits uh, my, my kids had a traumatic experience with rabbits this week. They found a, a couple of sweet baby bunnies in our backyard, and they were not hopping, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and so we're going to take a rabbit trail. That was a rabbit trail about the rabbit trail. Um, here, here's a little bit of a rabbit trail. I said, I said the Holy Spirit is who, who, uh, who is the author of this, 
Um, and that Matthew is the one who is believed to have penned it. But here's the rabbit trail. We want to just reaffirm um, in great confidence that the scriptures that we hear from today are the very words of God. Um, there's, there's different people that believe very many different things about the Holy Scriptures. What we believe about the Holy Scriptures is that they are the perfect, inspired, inerrant, authoritative words of God. And, and so we live in a time where, where experience um, is, is elevated to a, to a particularly high level. Uh, we, we, we love to be governed and to and to, uh, and to hold as authority experience oftentimes. And so here's the thing. We were talking about this in my community group a few weeks ago. It's really not authority that we have trouble with. It's not that the idea of having authority, though maybe at one time we would have said, well, everyone's just doesn't want authority. It's not a matter of authority that we have an issue with. It's believing who the authority is. And so in our experiential times, we believe that we are that authority. We were talking to our community group a couple weeks ago about, about agnosticism. Um, and you're like, man, where are we going with this? We were talking about agnosticism, essentially the idea that neither uh, someone doesn't identify as, as belief or unbelief and, and, and a higher power. And the, and the reality is, is that agnosticism, especially in our day, has, has really kind of shifted to where it's, it's not that we don't believe in an authoritative power, it's we believe that I am that authoritative power. It's that, that I'm that person who holds authority in my life that I can dictate by my experience, maybe how I feel today, maybe how, how I, I want things to be, that, that maybe that's the authority, the view of authority that we had. However, um, one of the things that Peter, Second uh, Peter is a great book, by the way. Peter, in his second letter, um, he, he speaks um, about personal first-hand experiences that he had. He said, like, hey, we were at the transfiguration, he says. We, were, we saw Jesus die. We saw him ascend into heaven. Uh, we saw all these things. We saw them with our own eyes. And yet, what Peter does in 2 Peter chapter, I believe it's chapter 1, Peter says this. Look, I'm going to go there. You don't have to go there because, like I said, this is a rabbit trail. But I, but I want us to make sure that we're on the same page. This is what, uh, this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Listen to this. Follow very closely. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his, to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And then look what Peter does. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Hey, that's a fascinating thing, right? Hey, one of the great apologetics in our day and in our time and really all throughout history is the eyewitness accounts to the crucified, resurrected Savior. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 holds that as a, as a great proof to the death and resurrection of Christ. There were people all over the place who saw it. But Peter would say here, we were there for those things. And that's very important. But what Peter does is he gets our eyes back on the book. 
He says, but you have a more sure word than what we even saw, what we even experienced. Church family, imagine having access to something that that you could be more confident in than how you feel today, than than how we feel about God, than how we feel about ourselves. Can I just tell you, this book tells us glorious, wonderful things about God. This book diagnoses us better than anything or anyone could diagnose. And so we have something certain. And so we believe that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. I'm going to say that again. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. This is the, the voice of God. We have great confidence in what this tells us about our great Savior, and it tells us much. Not, not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah he is. And so let's look at 9, 35 through 38. Again, we're not just seeing here in Matthew chapter 9, and really the whole book of Matthew, um, that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's telling us over and over again what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And it's a very important thing for us to see. Not only that Jesus is God, but what kind of God Jesus shows us God is. <laughs> right? Um, and so today's text does this in a, in a powerful way. And so it's been very well established throughout Matthew. Uh, that, that Jesus is authoritative. We continue to see that in verse 35. Let's look at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And so we see that in this verse that Jesus continues to go to all surrounding cities and villages. Some people's versions say healing all kinds of illnesses and all kinds of diseases. But, but really what we're supposed to see is that Jesus has the authority to go about doing all of these things. In fact, look at Matthew 4.23. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I was reading this this week, kind of the context around. Look at Matthew 4.23, just a couple pages back. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Isn't that interesting? You've got really almost the same exact verse on either side of this section of Matthew's gospel, uh, that, that, on, that before he begins teaching, he's healing. He's, he's going throughout all Galilee. And on the other side, he's doing the same thing. He's teaching. He's healing all kinds of diseases. And Patrick Schreiner says something really interesting about the kingdom of God. Some of you are like, what is the kingdom, what is the kingdom of, of, of God? What is, what is the gospel of the kingdom? What is this thing? Well, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack when we're talking about the gospel of the kingdom, but Patrick Schreiner says something very simple. He just says, when you read um, the, the, the kingdom of God or, or the, the uh, gospel of the kingdom, simply the most simplest way to understand it is that it's God, it's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And this would make sense. This is a, I think this is a good summary of what the gospel is. This would make sense because what happens between 4.23, where we see uh, Matthew 4.23, where he's healing, going through all the places, and then 9.35, where he's doing the same thing, what's Jesus doing? He is describing what his kingdom is like and what life is like for his people in his kingdom, and then he displays his great power through his miracles time and time again. It's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And what Jesus is doing is saying, I am establishing my place here. I am the king over it. I have power over it. And now I'm going to tell you what life within that kingdom looks like for the kingdom citizen. So it's the king's 
power over the king's people in the king's place. Established now and consummated then. And so Jesus, as today's text shows us, 35 to 38, he's not only one who bears authority. We've talked about the authority of Jesus over and over and over again. But in this text and all throughout, we see that Jesus displays great mercy. I really want us to see this, okay? So I've got three things. Here we go. My famous three things. Every good preacher's three things, right? Here's, what, here's the three things that we're going to see about what kind of Savior. Remember, we're not just seeing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. We're seeing what kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior is he? And Matthew, this, this section tells us three particular things. That Jesus is a compassionate Savior, that he's a shepherding Savior, and he's a sovereign Savior. Those are the three things that we're going to see. Jesus is a compassionate Savior, a shepherding Savior, and a sovereign Savior. And so the first thing that we see is that Jesus is a compassionate Savior. Look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus being a compassionate Savior shows us that we have a compassionate Savior who feels with us who feels for us. And so it says that when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. Look what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus was inconvenienced by the crowds, does it? It doesn't say that Jesus was, was, uh, was driven crazy by the crowds, does it? I don't know about you, crowds drive me crazy. Um, I get in a crowd, I get in a line of people, and I start judging every single one of them. Um, like, I don't shop uh, at Christmas time very well. Um, I shop the day before. And let me tell you, there's a, there's a, I am no more judgmental of other people than on Christmas Eve, saying, why in the world did you people not get this done already? I've got stuff to do. The crowds drive me crazy. The crowds don't drive Jesus crazy. What, is it, what, do, they, what, is, what do the crowds drive him to? Drive him to Compassion drives him to compassion. What Matthew communicates here is that Jesus saw these people and he was moved. What a, what a crazy thing, right? I don't know if you ever thought of Jesus in this way, but, but both, both the, the, the Latin translation and the Greek translation of this word, I read this in a book, I didn't, I didn't, I, I'm not a professional or anything like that, but, but what's important to see here is that both the Latin and the Greek communicate this compassion of Jesus in a very visceral way. You know what I'm saying? Do you know what I mean by that? A visceral way to where like he feels something. It's not, it's not just that like he feels sorry for them, but that he actually within his soul and within his heart, he feels sad. He feels a sadness. He feels a brokenness. He feels their helplessness. And he, he feels that in a, in a visceral way that, that both their spiritual and their physical suffering caused him to respond viscerally, physically, emotionally in such a way that he was moved. And let me just tell you something. I think one of the greatest apologetics of the faith that, that, that distinguishes our faith from pretty much any other faith in the entire world is that our God became flesh and dwelt among us. What The, the, the way that we said it before um, and the way that, that uh, this, this one theologian says it is that majesty stooped. What, what framework does any religion have? What framework do we have for a king who would step away from his throne to, to dwell among people who are harassed and helpless? 
I know normally it's like the edict of a king to go take care of all those people, right? No, but what our faith says is that our God, John chapter one, became flesh and he dwelt among us. I think, I think it's a, an incredibly beautiful apologetic. And that's also a way to, to show us that, 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 that our faith is unlike any other faith in all of the world. That's just one of the components of that. So because it was because that Jesus was God and, was, and, and stepped into this that he was able to feel this way. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. I do want everybody to turn here. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. This is what the text says. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Let's take a pause for a second. Um, I didn't quite look up where that, where that reference is to, but verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Church family, there are people in this room sitting next to and around you who are suffering, who are struggling, and what the Bible continually calls our attention to is that we would come together. Later in Hebrews, the writer's going to say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And I would just say that a, that a massive purpose and a massive reason be, be, behind our gathering here is that we would tell of the name of Jesus to our brothers and sisters and that we would, in the midst of the congregation, sing the praise of God to one another. They would build one another up, that we would encourage one another, that we would bear the burdens of one another. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, he himself, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What a, what a beautiful passage. This compassion of Jesus is, 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 is drawn to the, the helplessness and the harassment of the people in such a way that Jesus is able to relate with and feel with us in our helplessness. It says that, it, it, the, the text says, and I'm just gonna believe that it's what it, it's what it means, that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Looked up the Greek word for every, guess what it means? Everyone, every, right? I didn't really look up the Greek, but that's what it means. In his great compassion, Jesus not only suffers, here's the, here's the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth for us, church family. In 
his great compassion, Jesus not only suffers with us, which is good enough news, he suffers for us, for the propitiation for our sins, so that we would be forgiven through his life, through his death and his resurrection. Let me say this again. In the great compassion of Jesus, he not only suffers with us, but for us, on behalf of us. And, and here's what I want to see. I, I mentioned this last week, and I thought, man, I wish I would have saved that for this week. But I'm going to say it again, because I, I think it's just as powerful for us. That we've, as we've seen the authority of Jesus play out over the last several chapters, we've seen people moved by the authority of Jesus. We've seen people healed by the authority of Jesus. The, 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 the authority of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus both display Jesus as God. And so, again, like I said last week, some of us just want authoritative Jesus. Some of us just want compassionate Jesus, right? Jesus, in both his authority and his compassion, show us who God is. So, so it's not that like we, we get this kind of Jesus and this kind of Jesus. No, the, the, Jesus reveals himself to us as God as much in his compassion as he does in his authority. We're going to read some more scripture. Y'all okay with that? Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. I should probably start calling on people to do it. I won't call on you. Some of you just got real nervous. Please don't call on me. We, we, we reference this verse a lot, and I think it's, I think it's a, good, a, a, a good passage. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. Um, if someone would, would read that really loudly for us. So this is, this is God before Moses, essentially, I, I don't, this is, for lack of a better word, in, introducing himself, or, or at least referring to himself. God is referring to himself before the face of Moses. And who is it that from the very mouth of God, he says that he is? He is a God who is merciful, gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression of sin, and he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what, Jesus, what God says about himself is that I am both merciful and compassionate and authoritative. And so when we see the mercy and the authority of Jesus, he is showing through both characteristics that he is God. And we have the, the fullness of God who dwelled in Jesus bodily. We have the fullness of God on display through his mercy and his great authority. And so don't take away one or the other. Don't take away one or the other. Be one who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. Church family, I'm not... I'm not making like a direct correlation here, but, but I am saying, hey, one of the things that we're gonna, we've added to our, uh, our, our membership um, material, we're gonna have a membership class. I think we have 25 folks staying for membership class, um, our largest class yet. 
Um, so if, if, you, if, if you want to stick around, do that. Um, but one of the things that we've added to this uh, membership packet is, a, is what's called the Conflict Field Guide uh, by, a, by a biblical counselor named Ken Sand. Um, and, and, and he just helps us think about conflict. And so what we're going to begin doing and why we've even invited current members to stay over is because there's things that we need to see in this, that there's a way for us to deal biblically with conflict. There's, there's a way that we as pastors ought to shepherd people in conflict. There's a way that we as pastors need to be held accountable in conflict with other people. But there is a way to biblically handle conflict, and it's not being overly aggressive, and it's not completely withdrawing either. But we reflect the character of God, church family, when we show mercy to those around us. I'm not saying that we are God. I'm not saying that in any way. I'm saying that we reflect who God is when we are merciful and gracious with one another. So that's very important for us to see. So what kind of savior is this? We've seen he's authoritative, but in this text we see that Jesus is compassionate. And what kind of God do we worship? A compassionate God. Can I just say that uh, the, the, the people who talk about the angry Old Testament God just simply have never really read the scriptures. Just don't really understand it. They don't understand the, 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 long, the, the, uh, the long suffering of God. They don't understand the, the, the mercy that, that when people were destroyed by God, it was after decades and decades and decades and direct calls for these people to repent. God is a merciful God, slow to anger, quick to forgive. So Jesus not only shows that he's compassionate, remember that when we see Jesus, we see who God is. We see who Yahweh is, the Old Testament God. The, the New Testament Jesus and the Old Testament God are not two different, two different characteristics. They are the same. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells bodily. The second thing that we see in this text is that we have a shepherding Savior, one who leads us, Man, what a, what, this, is a, this is a beautiful component of, of this passage. Look at, look at the end of uh, chapter 9, verse, or, uh, the end of uh, verse 36 in chapter 9 of Matthew. It says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We have a compassionate Savior who feels and we have a shepherding Savior, shepherd, say that 10 times fast, a shepherding Savior who leads, a shepherding Savior who leads. Jesus not only feels with us and for us, he intervenes on our behalf. He leads us. Jesus sees the people, and the text says essentially that he understands that they are aimless, that they are wandering, they are harassed, and they are helpless. They are spiritually destitute. He shows that without a shepherd, these people are vulnerable, and they were. They were harassed and helpless. Later, we're going to see in, in Matthew that they were burdened, and, and they, were, um, they had laid upon them the heavy and the impossible yoke of the Pharisees. The yoke there is not an egg yoke. Um, it's not uh, the, the fitness gym yoke, like that dude's yoked, right? Um, it's not that kind of yoke. The yoke that Jesus refers to is the teaching that the Pharisees are giving. And, and Jesus says, hey, that yoke is heavy and impossible. And Jesus doesn't say, so let's just take teaching out. He says, no, put my teaching on you. My teaching, my yoke is light. My yoke, my, my gospel the, 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 the thing that I am declaring will liberate you. It will not weigh you down. And these people had been burdened by the heavy and the impossible yoke 
of the teaching of the Pharisees, that in order to be accepted before God, you had to do this, 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 and this. You had to do all of these things. And what Jesus shows us is that sheep are vulnerable to straying without a shepherd. Sheep are very vulnerable when they don't have a shepherd to stray. And when they stray, they're in great danger. And often they don't know how to find their way back. That's why in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find one because he's he's not going to find his way back on his own. He needs a good shepherd to come and to bring him home. He's wandering. He's aimless. He's he's desperate. And and, and here's the thing. We're going to dig into some more Old Testament passages. You're like, man, we got the Old Testament today. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 23 and Ezekiel 34. And here's what I want us to see. That the people of God had a long history of bad, unfaithful shepherds. In fact, many of the great rebukes in the Old Testament and the prophets were directed at unfaithful, wicked shepherds. There's, there's lots of places throughout the Old Testament where, where rebukes are happening, where prophets are, are saying very heavy things. And, and oftentimes, what is, sometimes what it is um, directed at are wicked, unfaithful leaders who are called to shepherd their people, but who are not. So look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. It's a little bit of a, little bit of a, of a, of a, of a text, so uh, someone read that loud for us. And so this is a woe to the poor shepherds of Israel. Jeremiah is casting this this declaration over these people, and the Lord is declaring over these people, I will send a faithful shepherd. I will send a a good shepherd, one who will restore the people, one who will care for the people, one who will tend to the people. And then um, how about Ezekiel chapter 34? Ezekiel 34. I'll give you just a second to find that one. Ezekiel 34, verses 20 through 23.
they, will, they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, who shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, shall be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Here's the interesting thing. Ezekiel, chronologically, is actually written after the time of David. And so the, the shepherd that Jesus, that is being promised here in Ezekiel is, is Christ, the, 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 the one who would come from the line of David, the one who would, remember, he is the, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ezekiel is, is prophesying over these people, hey, you have bad shepherds, but there is a good shepherd coming. And so what we see here is that Jesus is a compassionate Savior and that he feels, and he is a shepherding Savior that he leads. And in that, he's also showing us that he's the fulfillment of the promised coming shepherd who would shepherd his people, who would love and care for his people. A better and more sufficient shepherd for the people of God was promised. And so just as the compassion of, God, of Jesus points to the godness of Jesus, so does Jesus as a shepherd, right? Right? Psalm 23, we read it this, this morning um, for, for our call to worship. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so in the shepherding care of Jesus, who later will say, I am the good shepherd. I am the, 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 the door. I am the gate to, to the whatever those things. What, I can't remember how he says it in, in the book of John. But I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice that Jesus is also the fulfillment and he points to the shepherding care of our heavenly father. So Jesus is a shepherding savior. And then the third thing that we see about um, our savior, um, we'll read verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The third thing that we see about our savior in this particular text is that we have a sovereign Savior, a sovereign Savior who sends. Can I say any more S's in that? It's very alliterated, isn't it? A sovereign Savior who sends. Let me just say something here about this, because I, I, I want us to see the, the, way that I, I, the, the way that it seems that the text is pointing to, to this passage. And, and, the, and the, way that the, text, the way the text is pointing to this passage is different than what we have often heard about these couple of verses. And so what we've often kind of taken away from this is that, that the mission, the, the work of missions is frantic. I don't know about you, but this, is, this passage is, is what is often used as what I like to call the frantic missions passage, right? Like any mission Sunday that you've got, any, any, any like hard call to evangelism is... The, the harvest plumble labors are few. But, but as, but as uh, an author named Andy Johnson, who wrote a, a book on missions, it's actually out there on, in our bookstore, what he says is that the mission of God is urgent, but it is not frantic. That the mission of God is urgent, but it, but it is not frantic. Essentially, this is often understood as Jesus looking out on the condition of and the expansiveness of the earth. And, and Jesus, the way, that I've, the way that I've understood it, and maybe this is more on myself than anyone else, the way that at least I've understood it is that Jesus is pretty much like heaving up a prayer, praying that people will get out and do the work. I don't know if that's anyone else's hearing and understanding of this, but Jesus, we get to the end of Matthew 9, and Jesus is somewhat overwhelmed, the way that the way I've often understood, Jesus is somewhat overwhelmed. Man, there's a lot of people out here. 
pray. Man, I, all, I guess all we can do right now is pray. All we can do right now is pray, Lord of the harvest, that he will put people in the harvest. No, rather, I believe what this is is a display of care, concern, and the sovereignty that God displays in drawing people to himself. This is, this is Jesus less saying, here's what we've got to do, and more about, no, this is the way that we will, this is the way that I will shepherd my people. This is the way that people will come to know me, come to, to faith in me. And so something helpful to keep in mind is that, God, that Jesus, that God is sovereign not only over the ends, he's sovereign over the means. And that tells us, you know what I mean by that? He's not just sovereign over the ends, he's sovereign over the means, meaning that if God is sovereign over something, he's sovereign over the things that get us to that ends. And what, so what Jesus is saying here is that he's, the, the means that he's sovereign over is that through prayer, people will hear the gospel, through prayer and through going. And so here's, here's the thing. We've just studied through five whole chapters of Jesus displaying his authority and his power through his works and his words. I hope that it's very clear that he is sovereign and powerful over everything. Death, sickness, disease, paralysis, blindness. Um, forgive to, Jesus is sovereign to forgive sin. And so it's not as if Jesus gets to this point and he despairs on what he is to do with all these people in the harvest. No, it's, it's not as if God is sovereign and powerful over everything but salvation, if God is sovereign over, if God is sovereign, he is sovereign of all things. And we see that in this passage and all throughout this. But this is not often the way that this is read. Jesus has shown that he has the power to heal, resurrect, forgive sins, and save. And now he's showing us the means through which he has graciously ordained for that to happen. And that is through prayer and through his people. Through his people and through prayer. And so here's, here's a very common question. If God is sovereign, why would we pray? Well, the, the, I think the simplest answer um, is we should pray because God has told us to pray and that this is how he has chosen to work in the world. He's sovereign over the ends and the means. Could God save everyone? Could God just come down without any, using anybody? God has always worked through a people, hasn't he? He's, he, he told Adam and Eve, he created Adam and Eve. He said, I've created you for a purpose, to, to, to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill my earth with the glory, with the glory of God. And then, he, and then they fail, and he goes on to, to, to Noah. He says, Noah, you're, you're my chosen person. Then Noah fails, he goes to Israel. Israel fails, and, and, and he comes to, to us here in, in the gospel. And he says, listen, this is what I'm sending you out to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. This is the way through which I will work. And I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Deuteronomy says, it's not because you are more powerful or more mighty than all the other nations, but because of the love that I set on you. And this is the means through which God has chosen to work. And so the question isn't, if God is sovereign, why would we pray? The question is, why would we not pray to an all-knowing, sufficient God? Can, can, can I just challenge this in something? This is, this is as true for me as it is to anyone else. We fail to pray only when we believe ourselves to be sovereign and sufficient. We, we fail to pray only when we believe that we're sovereign and sufficient. If we believed in a sovereignly sufficient God, would we not be knocking down heaven's door? That's kind of a, a lame way to put it. And you, then you started singing, right? You, I know you did. I know, I know you all you 70s people. I wasn't there for it, but I know, I, know, I know you were. Why would we not pray to an all-knowing, sovereign God? 
because so oftentimes we believe ourselves to be sovereign and sufficient. I can figure this out. I can be eloquent enough or, um, or, or uh, I, can, I can sway people with my charisma or my, or my words. No, Jesus tells his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, I don't know exactly if he's referring to himself. Maybe some of you know. You can come tell me later. I'm not going to stand up here and act like I know. I don't know if Jesus is referring to himself. I don't know if he's referring to his Father in heaven. Um, but but I, I don't believe it's untrue that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. So he may not be referring to himself. Later in Matthew 12, Jesus is going to refer to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord over everything. Later in, in, uh, in, in Matthew 28, he's going to declare that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So I... I think it's safe for us to believe that Jesus is the Lord of the, sa- of, the, of, the, of the, not the Sabbath, of the harvest and the Sabbath. And so Jesus isn't just hoping that people will pray. He's not, he's not hoping that people will go and that people will hear the gospel. And he's, and he's not saying if we pray and if God sends, people might hear. No, Jesus says, pray that the Lord send and when they are sent, they will declare, and people will believe. Romans 10 tells us this. And so, Jesus, I want us to see something very practical to us, applicable to us, Grace Harbor, 73162 people. You may not all be 73162 people, that's fine. But I do want you to, to see something, that God is so sovereign and so serious about this, that when there are hurdles for laborers to get into the harvest, he will often bring the harvest to the laborers. He is so serious. Like, he's not just going to be... There are, are, there, are there miraculous stories of people coming to, to faith and salvation through, through, through some unusual means? I, I would say yes. But I think what is ordinary in the Scriptures is that Jesus sends people out and that people proclaim, and that people hear, and that people believe. And, and he is so serious about this that when there are hurdles for, for Christians, for missionaries, to get into places that are close to the gospel, God will intervene in a, such a way that he will bring that harvest to us. Church, that's that literally our reality. Do, do we believe God's word, or do we not? Acts 17, we spoke about it a few weeks ago. Acts 17 says, hey, essentially this, that, that God has, has placed everyone where they are for a reason. That he has determined the allotted dwelling places, and not only the dwelling places, but like the, the period of time that you live in. It's not an accident that you live in 2023 in all the chaos and craziness, right? It's not an accident. And God is so sovereign and serious about this that he will often bring our... People, neighbors from all over the world right here to us. And so there's two, there's two mistakes that we often make. The first is we don't pray as Jesus tells us to do. Maybe we can just repent of that. It's okay. It's okay to, re- it's okay to repent. Repentance isn't just something we do for salvation. Repentance, as Luther said, is uh, that when our Lord said repent, that he meant all the Christian life to be one of Repentance. That we could look at our lives and say, Lord, I've, I've, not, I've not prayed. I've, I've not prayed to the Lord of the harvest to, to send 
those workers into the harvest. So I don't want to alleviate all of the call that we have here to live obediently and to pray and to see the urgency with which we are called to be mobilized, to, to share the gospel with people, to go, to pray. But we do fail to pray as we ought to pray, as our Lord has told us to pray. Secondly, we often sit on our hands. We say, okay, man, I'm really good at prayer. I got, I got that down. I'm, I'm, I'm obeying Jesus. But we sit on our hands not realizing that we literally are all called to fulfill this mission. I, I hope that we don't see in this, in this verse here, in verse 37 and 38, that, that Jesus says, here's our... Here's our now, are, are, there, are there different roles that we play in the mission of God? Absolutely. But I hope that we would not be limited to seeing that this role that we have in praying eliminates us from going and being faithful in our proclamation. And I can, I can show you that because the, the mistake that we often make is we sin, sit on our hands, we don't realize that we are called, all of us, to fulfill this mission. And yes, we need specific workers in specific uh, places doing specific work, but the, the people that Jesus says this to, if you go into chapter 10, the people that Jesus says this to, what, what's happening in the next verse? He's sending them out. He tells them, pray that the Lord would send people out. And then guess what? Jesus says, all right, you're going. <laughs> you, you, are, you are God's answer to this prayer. And so church, we are called to pray that the Lord would send workers to do specific work in specific places for, with specific people and to, and to commit and dedicate a, 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 an intentional amount of time to that. But we also, we don't just come here and sit in chairs and then, hey, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, subpar message and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come back next week. No, we are commissioned and we are sent from this place to be people who pray and people who go. And here's the, the beautiful thing in this, that again, this isn't just some abstract call of Jesus. It's not like go and there might be people who hear. No, Jesus tells us, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we can't disconnect that from his mission and his commission to go. That means that when we go, the church will be built. People will come to faith. People will believe in Jesus. And as I was talking to our brother Brian this week, I just don't buy the lie that people aren't interested in that. As a church, we're not going to believe that. We're not going to believe that people are not interested in this life-saving message. And we're not going to sit on our hands and, and say, well, you know, this, 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 this culture is just heading to hell in a handbasket, you know? We're, we, just, we, we just don't have any hope in this. No, we have great confidence in our going that a compassionate, shepherding, sovereign Savior, God, who is seeking for himself people who would worship him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Robbie Gallaty says, says this. He says, the gospel came to you on its way to someone else. The gospel came to you on its way to someone else. And so listen, we're not like getting all rallied up in here and, and riled up in here about, well, okay, let's go storm the gates of hell with a water cannon, right? Or let's go, let's go bang on all the doors around here. Maybe we ought to be doing that. But who are you faithfully proclaiming to? Because the gospel came to you on its way to someone else. The gospel came to you because it came to someone else who shared it with you, right? And Jesus is saying, pray that workers would go and that people would come to faith in him. What a truly great and glorious gospel that we have, and what a truly great and glorious Savior that we have, one who is compassionate, one who shepherds us, and one who is so good and so sovereign. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us in your word about who you are, um, about what your son has done for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, um, and, and how, Lord, the, the commission of, of praying for those, um, praying for those, uh, or praying to the Lord of the harvest and workers into the harvest, Lord, you, you gave us that commission, but you also gave an, an additional commission, maybe, maybe one that's just more, more broad and more general, even at the end of Matthew and the Great Commission. We go into all the world, all of the world, not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, not just Samaria. But Lord, we would go into all the world and share the gospel, proclaim the gospel. And so, Lord, we know the gospel because not only did your 12 disciples obey that, but the disciples of those disciples and the disciples of those disciples and those disciples understood that commission as theirs. And they shared and were faithful to proclaim. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful in doing the same, knowing that we have a compassionate, shepherding, sovereign Savior who desires that all would come to a knowledge of him, as First Timothy says. So, Lord, help us to be faithful in that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.